Yeah, the Damon Accords. No, it's actually Demon <laughs> Accords. D D E M. There's no A in that one. Is it Damon or Demon? Damon novel series. Damon Accords. And on the other side, we can always recommend Demon Squad by Tim Marquitz. How many? You said the uh, the Damon series is two books. That's okay. It's a book. Damon and Freedom. Uh, does this settle the debate, or does it just make it worse? <laughs> Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. This is episode 355.5. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. We're in the Mintcast channel in IRC at irc.spotchat.org. If you see something that you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube. Post at the Mintcast subreddit. Chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at mintcast.org. This is Leo, and with me today is Joe. Hello, hello. Tony Hughes. Hi, guys. Josh. Hey, guys. Moss. I'm almost famous. And special guest, Mike McKnight. I'm new. Yay! We're recording on Sunday, February 21st, 2021. First up, in our inner section, we talk to community member Mike. And finally, the feedback and a couple of suggestions. We'll head down to the Linux innards and we'll talk to Mike. So in this section, we talk to Mike McKnight. Mike, we just wanted to welcome you again to the show, even though you've been here for a long time so far. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the second welcome. I appreciate it. Of course. And uh, just really kind of wanted to get started on, so what are you doing? What, what are you doing with this whole Linux thing? Where, where did you start? Uh, I started kind of by accident. Um, it's a bit of a funny story. I've, uh, I just started using Linux uh, almost two years ago. Actually, uh, the end of March will be my two-year Linuxversary. So uh, before then, I was a Mac convert. Uh, I've just I've been using Mac OS for about a decade uh, beforehand. And uh, what had happened was I ended up needing to get a PC for work. I work from home, and uh, it needed to be a thing where I had to get it really, really quickly. I, I make a lot of boneheaded purchase decisions sometimes. I don't know why. It's just my nature. So I popped onto Amazon and spent all of uh, three and a half minutes picking out a PC. I went mostly by price, ordered it, showed up two days later, and it was an absolute piece of junk. It was a uh, Asus Vivo book, uh, low end. It has a very low end. It has a had a Centi- uh, excuse me a Celeron processor in it, and it ran Windows S. If anyone is not familiar with Windows S, it's a very very watered down version of Windows 10, uh, similar almost to a Chromebook. You can't really do a lot with it. You can't even install anything from outside of the Windows Store, Microsoft Store, Garbage Store, whatever they call it. S stands for sucks. <laughs> exactly. It really does. So I went back to the, to the Amazon page and to the reviews for this thing, and there was one guy in there who had given the computer a perfect five-star rating, and he said that as soon as he got it, he ripped Windows out of it and installed this thing called Linux Mint into it. So I said, well, I might as well give it a shot, because as of right now, I have a fully unusable computer for my purposes, and Amazon won't take it back, so... I installed Linux Mint on it and spent the weekend trying to teach myself Linux. I think I probably broke it and had to reinstall it about five or six times. But two years later, here I am. 
Man, that's awesome. I love that. It's like, so yeah, just totally just fell right into your lap. I love it. Yeah, it was more of a kind of a necessity thing, I think, at that point. I was, I, like I said, I was stuck with this awful purchase anyway, so I had to try to make the best out of it. And what did, distro did you say you started with? I started with Mint. Uh, that, was, that was actually the distro that the person in the Amazon reviews uh, said that he had replaced Windows with, and it worked perfectly, so it seemed good to me. I, I did a, a little bit of quick research on, on Mint, and it said it was also a, a great beginner distro, so that solidified it for me. So did, uh, did you kind of feel that way? Like, uh, as you got into it and started tinkering around with it, did you feel like it was a good beginner distro as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, as a matter of fact, as soon as I got it fully installed and, and had it actually working and running, I, I, I felt incredible about myself. I, <laughs> I felt like I was, uh, I don't know, Edward Snowden or something, but just, uh, it, it, it was powerful. It, was, it worked. It made this computer run again for the, you know, for the very first time. Yeah, I, I just fell in love immediately with, with Linux and Linux Mint. Yeah, I, I think it was uh, pretty much the exact same thing for me. Um, as uh, as I started getting back into Linux after a little bit of a hiatus, um, that's that's what I did. I think because uh, Mint had the codex. I th- as a matter of fact, I think it was uh, seventeen that that brought me back in. That sounds right. I think that sounds right. Ah, maybe I don't remember what version it was, but they they shipped with the codex, and I think that was the most absolute fantastic thing ever. Because it felt like on Windows when you were trying to use. Um, like the Windows Media Player, and you got this one file, and you're trying to play it, and it's like, you don't have the codec, and then you had to go find out that you were like, oh, you need to go download K-Lite or CCCP, and then they would have your code. So Mint was basically that pack and then some on top of all of that. So it, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, it was definitely that, and I think for me too, what I find to be the kind of the greatest feature of Mint that makes it so excellent for beginners, and that also really doesn't get a lot of uh, a lot of hype, I think, is the update manager. I, I love uh, Mint's update manager because not only does it tell you what needs to be updated, but it actually gives you a description of what the packages are and what they do. Yes. Which as a beginner, I mean, I would have no idea what ALSA is or, or any of these other things unless it actually had a description. So it was really instrumental in my, in my learning more about the distro at the same time. Yep. And uh, as I started tinkering around with that, I realized that you can even have it tell you more. <laughs> so you right. can actually go in and say, you know, what version are you coming from? What version are you going to? And dates and all kinds of information. So it, it's... It really is one of the best updating solutions when you care about it, when you care about updates. Otherwise, it's, it's just another one in the pack. But if you care about the information there, it's, it's top-notch. It's, it's the best in my book. Yeah, I agree, definitely. So anyhow, Mike, what other distros have you tried out? And what are you still running on any? So if I stayed once I installed Mint at first, I stayed on Mint for about six months or so, and then I started doing some distro hopping. I uh, switched over to Ubuntu for a bit, uh, did a little Fedora, did some Kubuntu, and I also tried Ubuntu Mate. I did all of those. I think I did a distro hopping for about hmm, maybe six months in total. And then I came back to Mint, and I use Mint as my daily driver now. But in addition to that, I also use Tails, and I use Hunix. Oh, very cool. What was your use case for Tails? Uh, Tails, I do a lot of uh, cryptocurrency with. Ah, uh, now okay. that is a smart way to handle your wallets. Yeah, exactly. I, I like to keep it off, the, off my hardware altogether, just because, you know, Linux obviously is very, very secure. But with it being my daily driver and also the computer that I use for work... There's no guarantees that it's absolutely nothing insecure in it or, or key loggers or 
scripts or so I just like to keep everything secure that way compartmentalized. Exactly. Any this is one of the things going on. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Any multi-booting going on? Uh, I did. I, I dual booted for my first six months with just just with Windows, but now at this point, I'm only uh, just running Linux Mint solely on the machine. Any gaming? Not PC gaming. Uh, I never really got into that. I, I kind of find it to be a bit frustrating trying oh, to figure it out. Oh, you're a tabletop RPG guy. No, I'm actually a Nintendo fanboy. Uh, Nintendo purist. Oh, okay. There you go. Okay. <laughs> so you only play it on the original hardware? For the most part. I, I do have some emulators that I that I run some of the games that I own just kind of in a more convenient setting. But So is that NES or SNES, N64? Yep, all of the above. I own all Nintendo consoles uh, except for the Wii U and the Virtual Boy. Well, I mean, if you were yeah. going to skip some consoles, those are the ones to skip. <laughs> <laughs> definitely skip the Virtual Boy, and unless you just want it on the wall as a showpiece. It would be nice to have for my collection, but not for the prices that it's going for currently. I'm more of, a, uh, I'm more of the type of uh, retro gamer that likes to get use out of my products. I don't like them just for show. Oh, yeah, yeah, me too. I, I still have the original Nintendo, the NES, and I have uh, a Super Nintendo and an N64, and they all still work, and, oh, man, it's so good. No, it's so good. I don't, have, I don't have my original, like, first uh, run NES that I had growing up, but I have the, um, the second version, the, the top loader. Oh, yeah. And I have no idea if it still works or not. But I do have just, like, I've got probably... 50 original Nintendo games. Granted, I still have my uh, Atari 600, which is now broken thanks to a former roommate that stepped on it. But um, I only had a few of the games left over for that. And then like not long after it got ruined, my dad brought the tape deck over for it. Yeah. Oh, wow. So the, uh, the top loader, Joe, that you were talking about, that was an NES yeah, that was the original NES. Man, so you did you you didn't get to do the uh, the whole stick your finger in the notch and go back and forth really quickly to make the connection <laughs> happen right on the NES. No. Oh man, so there there was a lot of I, uh, reset smashing and and that the the wiggle uh, the NES wiggle. No, I did have the original NES as well. Oh, the, which oh, was okay. the the front loader. Oh right, and, yeah, that's and, the one and, I'm talking you know, about. Blow, blowing on the cartridge, yep. pulling it in and out several times to clean the contacts. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Things like that. And yeah, that happened a lot. That's good childhood right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we had one of the, the first run Nintendos, which was what, 1986? Uh, yeah, about 86 or 87. Uh, did you have the, yeah. the pack in Super Mario Brothers Duck Hunt? Yeah. I did, yeah. yeah. Came with the yeah. gun. I think, uh, I think my dad yep, got us the, the, the whole package where it came with that, the dual, the dual game. Came with the gun. Uh, I don't know if it came with two controllers or we had to buy two one after the, ba- after the fact. Yeah. yeah. And man, oh man, I don't know how many hours I spent on that game. It's just so and, much Until you time. had those giant calluses on your thumb <laughs> and you could practically push a needle into it and nothing would happen. Yeah. Yeah. I had those. I had those. I, had, I even had as a kid the power glove, which was oh, awful. Wow. So awful. That was so gimmicky. <laughs> yeah. And it came out with that movie. What was that the movie Wizard. called? I can't. The Wizard. It had uh, Fred Savage in it. I, I actually went and saw that. I think I was probably about maybe nine or ten years old, if I'm remembering correctly. And that was for the release of Super Mario Brothers 2? Three. Three. Okay. Three. Yeah. And at least Super Mario 3 was good. It was. Oh, and, yeah. And the, the movie The Wizard was really just a gigantic commercial for Super Mario Brothers 3 and the Power Glove. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. We, we just skipped over Super Mario 2 in this, in this little conversation. Is it bad? Well, 
It was pretty bad. No. What? It wasn't comparatively, yes. It wasn't actually a Mario Brothers game. Not to take this into uh, Nintendo cast, but oh, we're gonna Super Mario Brothers Two in Japan was actually a different, a completely different game called something like Doki Doki Panic, and oh. they just kind of recoded it and added Mario characters to it because they f- they thought that the actual Super Mario Brothers Two was too difficult for Western audiences. Oh wow! Oh. How cool. Well, I mean, I I actually kind of liked it a lot because I mean, it was pretty obvious that you were like, you were in not not really uh, kind of like how Super Mario Three, right? It, it was obviously a play because you're going behind the curtains and you're you're switching from one to the other and um and like uh, in in the third world of uh, the oh, in the third stage of the first world, you can hold down on those on the white blocks and you go behind the the props essentially and you can see them like screwed into the wall it's it was so cool i I thought two was awesome in that same way except you realize at the end of it all it was a dream right and i i kind of felt let down by that but the more i thought about it i was like yeah that that makes sense (laughs) well if you hadn't beaten it by now it's only been 30 plus yeah but what about all the retro kids that are coming up now that need to play that game oh Oh, sorry they watched it all on youtube already (laughs) they've seen the playthrough the internet has ruined everything yeah speed runs i I think you know as i as i realized what it was i came to terms with it and it was like you know actually that was a really good game now obviously it wasn't a real mario game but honestly i i still loved it man uh luigi was the best because he did that little kick and you could almost float I felt like Peach was cheating and Toad was hard mode. Yeah, Toad was kind of a waste of a character. I'm not really sure why he was even included. He, <laughs> he served no purpose I, on any level. Yeah, and I think for the most part, uh, Toad and Mario were, were basically a carbon copy of each other because they just had a regular jump. Uh, I think Toad actually had a he had a lower jump, but he was stronger. He could pick things up a bit faster than oh, the other characters. That, okay, okay, that makes sense. So Toad really was hard mode then. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That's cool. No, but... I emulate most of those these days instead of uh, worrying about whether or not my original Nintendo system still works. And my um, my Genesis is gone with the wind somewhere, probably in Iowa still. But um, <laughs> I've got a couple of those games still floating around. But yeah, I'll just emulate. I emulate the, the games that are harder to find or the games that are just prohibitively expensive to purchase. Um yeah, as a matter of fact, yesterday I was playing, I'm, I'm not sure if any of you guys remember this, Revolution X from the arcade days. It was an, it was an on-rail shooter starring Arrowsmith. And they were actually in the game. You had to go and rescue Arrowsmith by, by shooting these, I don't know, these weird soldiers and throwing CDs at them. And you had to, re- to save Arrowsmith. Yeah, I'll say I do miss a couple of the um, arcade games that just aren't going to emulate well, like the the ones where you actually had uh, a mock-up of a sniper rifle and in the arcade and you got to shoot things with it. Yeah. I- the giant ones with, like, the skateboard that you stood on, that was always <laughs> a really good workout. I miss the arcades, honestly. It's, it was such a fun oh, time yeah. in, the, in the 90s for me. And the sit-down version of Hydro Thunder with the the... Uh, speed controller on the one side so you could just drop it back real quick and pop it forward <laughs> to do your hop. Awesome days. Oh, old. Should we move on? Probably. Honestly, <laughs> no, because we, we need to stretch out the innards a little bit. But um, <laughs> I was going to step back a second. You mentioned cryptocurrency. Now, we have had some really good conversations about cryptocurrency, and I'm wondering what your stance is on it right now, considering 
the price of Bitcoin is over 56,000, but altcoin seems to be slowly sliding back down. Um, in, ter- in regards to Bitcoin, I couldn't be happier. Um, I started investing in Bitcoin about a year and a half ago or so. I want to say it was around the $9,000 mark uh, when I started investing. So obviously that's taken way off. Um, in regards to altcoins, I don't really do too much with altcoins. I hold Monero, but I use that more for kind of payments with privacy than I do for any type of an investment or, or anything along that line. So for me, it's almost, it's almost solely Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, but still, your Monero had to jump quite a bit in the last couple of months. Oh, yeah. The, I mean, the whole, the whole crypto market this year has just been really kind of, it's almost like a runaway train in a lot of regards. I do wish that I had hopped on Ethereum about a year ago. I blame Elon. Oh, absolutely. I, I follow him on Twitter. And it, as soon as he started, as soon as he started indicating his support for Bitcoin, it shot up like another seven or eight thousand dollars in 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, he mentioned it'll Doge. keep happening. I wonder if sponsors lets people donate in Bitcoin. See, he you heard Leo you talking about Doge. Well, here's that. Hold on. One, one sec. Moss, you don't need it. Go get a wallet. Find out your your wallet address and then just put that places. People can pay you that way. There's, there's, there doesn't have to be a middleman with crypto. That's why crypto is so cool. Did you cash? <laughs> <laughs> but you're expecting me to do something, and I'd rather have someone else do something and have it trickle to me. Mm, Just, no, no, no. That's not how crypto works. I mean, you can make it work that way, but then there's people taking cuts, and you don't want that. Or maybe Moss, maybe PayPal can, takes Bitcoin now. You might be able to get set up as a uh, as a provider on Brave Moss, and then people can pay you in bat. Yes. I don't even understand what you said. <laughs> and Bat has gone up quite a bit in the last few months as well. I mean, that was about five wow. cents, I think, a year uh, at the start of the oh, show. Oh, you said Brave. Oh, I, heard, year, yeah. I heard Rave, and I thought that was a new app or something. <laughs> yeah, it, it was really low, and now it's sitting at like almost sixty cents. It was up to sixty-five cents. Yeah, I, I think I think cryptocurrency is probably the wave of the future. I, I doubt it'll ever replace fiat currency but i can absolutely envision a future where bitcoin and maybe other cryptos are just more widely accepted you know walking into a store and paying with bitcoin will probably be fairly commonplace in the next five or ten years it's not going to go away it's definitely not going to go away now that major institutions are getting involved there are huge companies that are literally purchasing billions of dollars worth of uh of bitcoin right now so that's going to really hamper any type of regulation that the government may want to win place on it because now rich people are involved. Well, a lot of it was also the um, the value of the dollar dropping, pushing up the value of cryptocurrencies. And I'm wondering how lessening of the COVID crisis, I didn't want to say the ending of the COVID crisis, but the lessening of the COVID crisis as the uh, vaccination becomes more widespread, that should improve um, the U.S. dollar. So I'm wondering how that will affect cryptocurrency going forward. Right. Yeah, I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, wow, I sound like I know something. <laughs> Weird. I, I mean, I think I, obviously right now one of the biggest things um, going for Bitcoin has been all the institutional investors. That's what's really kind of forced the price to go upwards as, as much as it has. So I suppose as long as institutional investors still stay involved with it, even after the dollar gains strength, then I expect that hopefully Bitcoin will be okay too. Yeah, unless there's, um, you know, a bunch more hacks on uh, exchanges hitting the news, um, your price isn't going to drop back below 20000 again, I, I would assume. And dropping to 20000 would be a 
big hit to those major companies that invested in it. So hopefully you don't see that either. Right, exactly. And and I think now, or hopefully everybody that invests in cryptocurrency is knows to not leave your money on exchanges anymore, or at least not a significant amount of it. Hopefully. Shall we move back to Linux? <laughs> well, I mean, you can run the wallets on Linux, so I mean... <laughs> so, Mike, one of the uh, buzzwords around the Linux community at the moment is workflow. Uh, obviously, uh, traditional Microsoft taskbar at the bottom, start start uh, button at the left-hand side, all that kind of stuff. Do you do anything to your Linux um, distro to uh, suit you as far as workflow no, goes? No, you know, the greatest thing about Linux is that I didn't have to do anything to, uh, to adjust my workflow. So when I first started Linux, one of the things that I found when I started with Linux is that I really didn't need to adjust my workflow, although I thought I did. Um, I got into my head and I was trying to figure out, for work, I, I mostly just remote into my, uh, my in-office PC. So I really started trying to hatch this plan of creating a, a Windows 10 VM and then somehow in that VM getting the, the connection information so that way I can use the VM to remote into Windows. And then I learned about Remina and just made everything so much simpler for me. I just remote in uh, in the morning. So my workflow is literally just coming on, throwing on the corporate VM, starting up Remina, and that's it. Brilliant. Yeah, I have a uh, very similar, um, cause I do have to remote into a windows system. So yeah, I do know what you're talking about, but I don't use Remina for it. It's just a Citrix application. Oh, okay. I will say though, that, uh, that I find that Remina works a lot better than, uh, the windows remote desktop protocol, much more, much more stable. And, uh, I, I think Remina kind of strips away some of the unnecessary bits so i know i, I noticed with remina it won't show the the background desktop wallpaper on my work pc which is great because i don't need it but i, I think it saves the resources to make it run a lot faster than rdp does yeah i've never been a fan of rdp no me either not at all i, I find that especially java intensive applications really don't work well over rdp it's kind of garbage yeah, yeah. Does Linux do everything you need in a system? Do you wish it did more? Um, no, I've been I've honestly been really happy with Linux. Anything that I've ever needed that it didn't have, I've kind of found ways to get on my own, uh, whether through Wine or or whatever the case. Um, but no, I don't I don't do a lot of uh, I don't I, I I've never done anything proprietary. You know, I never I never worked with Adobe too much and. Or, or even Final Cut with Mac. So there, there weren't a lot of uh, proprietary applications that I missed out on when I came over. I found the, uh, the transition over to LibreOffice to be completely smooth and fine. I, I honestly don't know, understand why more people don't use LibreOffice in spite of, Windows, in spite of uh, Microsoft Office. Well, you can still use Microsoft Office even on, on Linux. And that's kind of a, an industry standard type of thing. And it's also the thing that kids get introduced to in school so it's the thing that they end up wanting to use the rest of their lives that's true and i, and I suppose if you're if you're a, a heavier user of microsoft office maybe if you're involved with the macros and whatnot it might be a tougher transition but luckily that wasn't my case it was just uh kind of drop and replace for me plus there isn't really anything to compare to OneNote. no that's true that, that is true i just use markdown i haven't tried that actually yet it, I mean, honestly, if you don't mind um, 
No, I mean, I, I don't know. It's not even really a mind thing. I, I really feel like Markdown is, for me at least, uh, the superior way to take notes because, um, you know, for instance, like in Microsoft Word, you would, if you wanted a header one, you'd have to type out whatever you wanted to do, select it, uh, go up to the top and bring it down and choose header one, and then it gets, you know, made big or whatever. In uh, in Markdown, it's basically whatever you want to type, just put a hash mark in front of it, kind of like you do in a comment in a, in a Linux configuration file, and bingo. That's it. That's all it is. And it, and it makes it header one. For header two, it's two hash marks. For header three, you know, to be smaller, it's, it's three hash marks. Um, and just, it's, it's really interesting, I think, if you're, just, if you're just a fast typer and want to get it done, I think Markdown uh, allows you to keep your hands on the keyboard the entire time. Yeah, I'll have to check that out then. I think it's worth it. Now, you've already said that uh, you don't really do any heavy gaming on a Linux system, but do you do anything else um, for your hobbies, per se? 3D printing, anything like that? Mining? Uh, no, I definitely don't do any mining. I'd love to, but I don't have a, I don't have a setup like that, unfortunately. Um, no, but the only thing that I do with my Linux machine in, in regards to my hobbies is I, is I do uh, record music on it. Not in, a, not in a professional environment, but it's more of a, I can, I have a, a special pass through where I can hook it into the computer to record my guitar. And um, I used to use, I used to put it into GarageBand on Mac. And I've been looking for something comparable to that or, or hope, something at least somewhat comparable to that on Linux. I don't know anything. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's just raw audio because I've got a, uh, a Focusrite Scarlett Solo here. And I mean, it's got a hookup for whatever you want to uh, plug into it. There'd be a quarter inch jack. I've got a bass guitar that I can do that with. Um, and I mean, Audacity will record it, but I guess it depends on what you want to do with it after the fact. If you want to add effects and things like that, Audacity has some, um, but it's, it, that's not what it's for. It's, it's not a DAW. It, uh, if you want something like that, maybe you could look at Ardour. Um, I, I don't know how far, how deep in you've looked into all of this stuff, but Ardour seems to be, uh, it might just be exactly what you want. It's got the GarageBand stuff, but it's, um, it's about as complicated as, you know, all the other ones like Pro Tools and stuff. So, uh, it's a bit of a learning curve. And that's fine. I, I don't mind, uh, spending a weekend with it, trying to, trying to get to the bottom of how to use it. But mostly what I'm looking for is just something that'll allow me to record individual tracks and then layer them onto each other. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if, if, if you're not going to be doing much editing to the tracks, then Audacity will get you done. But yeah, to be honest with you, I think um, uh, Ardour is probably going to be a better, better choice for you because it's got way more functionality. And if you fall into something that you actually like, then I mean, all the better. Yeah, I'll have to check that out then. Definitely. Does anybody else have any questions? I think that'll do it. Tony's already asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm awake. I'm awake. I've got the matchsticks. All in right, the cool. Well, um, yeah, let's. Uh, I guess let's head down to vibrations and, and wrap this thing up. Well, we got some emails, Mike. Feel free to hop in if you have anything to add to any of this. But um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll we'll go on through this. Who wants to take Henrik? I'll uh, I'll read it for everybody. Heck yeah! Thank you. All right, so Henrik says, Hi, my experts. I have an article, link below, on my blog comparing memory resources for some distros. I have used the command top, and in result, I have focused free. Today, uh, I don't know what that is. Marius? I'm going to go with Marius. Marius commented that used is better and would give a somewhat different conclusion. I have read some about it, but not that I fully understand. 
If you read the comments on the bottom of the page, can you help me out of out understanding what buffer slash cache means and how it should be considered when comparing distros? Is used better for comparison than free? Or is the truth somewhere in between? Equals look at both. If you have time, I'm grateful for any response. By email, in the show, or why not directly a reply on the blog post? And then he goes on to include his link. Cheers, Henrik Hemren. Joe, all right, you're up. I, I don't know about anybody else, but um, is used another like application like free? Because I, I I haven't. No, he's he's saying when he runs the free command or when he sees it in top. Okay, um, that's okay. that's the used he's talking about. So used memory, yeah. Okay, yeah, no, in free, I definitely look at the used, and then um, my I, I do, yeah, because free doesn't necessarily tell you how much is actually free because there's a couple of different things there let me uh bring up free well okay so so i'm I'm looking at it now and i mean used memory is basically calculated as total total memory minus free minus buffers minus cash so used is basically what um what your system is actually using at the time, not counting buffers and cache. But you know, one of your questions was, yeah. you know, what what does that mean? What is buffers buffers and cache? So, um, buff and cache is um, what is not really being used in RAM, but is left in RAM in the background so that it can quickly be accessed because you're going to go back to it, or the system assumes you're going to go back to it. Yeah, exactly. It just speeds up the process, yeah. doesn't yeah. it, by keeping it uh, cached? Yeah, or and the buffered. difference between them is is buffers is kernel memory, and cached is pretty much all the other junk. So, um, yeah, it's either it either is going to be loaded into RAM, so we go ahead and throw it in the cache anyway, or it was loaded into RAM, and we just haven't cleared anything at this point. Uh, so it's still lingering around, which is why used does not show it in its calculation. So use is a pretty good um, idea. It gives you a pretty good idea of what you're seeing or what you're using. The stuff in cache is basically the first stuff that will end up going to swap. And now swap is useful. It's extremely useful, especially if you have a low amount of RAM. Now on my systems, I have the swap and swap is also good for things like, you know, sleep and wake. But my goal is to have enough RAM that it never actually needs to go into the swap during normal operations. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's just a good way to, to deal with it unless you've got something like Intel Optane, uh, which is basically, you know, sw- it's meant for swap, um, but it, it never goes to your actual system disk. Um, or you've just got a really fast disk and don't care. Uh, I think SSDs right. in general, once you start knocking on swap a little bit, with an SSD, it's much less noticeable than if you're on a hard disk. So, I mean, I, I agree with Joe. Uh, just stuff it full of memory, and if you can't do that, then stuff it full of an SSD, and I think you'll you'll be okay one way or the other. Yeah, faster SSD. Yeah. You know, the M2s, or the faster M2s. Yeah, and, and another thing that I think really kind of confuses people is the difference between free and available. And um, free is the amount of free and used physical and swap memory in the system. So it does take into account uh, swap memory as well, which kind of gives you a skewed view of how much memory you've got. But available is probably the the number that you actually want to look at um, because available is uh, how much memory is available for starting new applications without accidentally falling into swap or something like that. So 
For your use case, uh, Henrik, I mean, used is going to be what you want to look at for how much memory you're using, and available is what you want to look at for, you know, what your system has available to it to do other cool things with without getting into swapping and this and, and you know, getting into slower operations and things like that. But yeah, if, if what you're doing is loading up an operating system, opening terminal and typing free, then yeah, uh, what you're going to be looking at right there is used. Yeah. And I mean, just to see what got grabbed. I think there's a wider conversation to have about that. I mean, is that useful? Is is doing that? Because Moss, you love to do this too. Uh, how how useful really is this in general? Moss, you're asking you wanna... me. Well, I mean, yes, you do yes, it. He's I, asking you. I, you tend to do that. You you do that on Distro Hoppers Digest. You do. Uh, uh, throw that throw that information out. You know, does does that kind of information really uh, say one one operating system uses one gig and one uses five hundred and twelve megs? Is that like a game breaker for you? Well, no, we only use it to actually talk to people that have older systems. You know, exactly. will it work on right. this system? And yeah, you know, if if something is using. Uh, 284 megabytes at rest and something else uses a, a gig at rest, then you're probably going to want to use the lower system if you've got an older machine. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say there is it's extremely useful when you are looking at older systems. Absolutely. Or if you're trying to set speed records for, um, <laughs> for boot time. Yeah. 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 If, if you've got an i9 with... Uh, 24 gigs of RAM, then you don't have to think about it. Yeah, I wouldn't yeah, I, even I wouldn't I guess, even install Swap at that point. Yeah, really. Well, maybe because some systems won't sleep without a Swap. Yeah, I don't care. Usually, when I when I have that much memory, it's usually on a desktop, and I'm not putting it to sleep. But um, the only other time I could see it being useful is within uh, extremely heavyweight operating systems, and then mid-range hardware. I, I still think they're they're. If any, I don't know that there are any operating systems in Linux in general that use more memory on boot than Windows. So, I mean, saying heavyweight in Linux is True. pretty lightweight as far as Windows is concerned. But, I mean, overall... Yeah, or I, even as much processing as Windows in the background... Oh, true, tr very true, actually. Yeah, that is a huge thing. And I think, you know, we'll talk about John Wallace here in a little bit. Uh, you know, we're going to unload some of that stuff. But, you know, I, I think in general, though, I, I don't know that Linux is very good about memory management in general, and it's just getting better and better and better and better every single time we, we change uh, stuff. I mean, Fedora, I forget what it's called. They just went to their, um, to a different memory management um, kernel option, I think is what it was, but um, that it will unload things out of cache fast enough that you can, you'll, you'll just never touch swap most of the time in the first place, unless you are literally running, you know, more more application memory wise than you have memory you'll never really touch swap so you know when you get heavy uh you, you can't avoid it but i, I think we've just cough, gotten cough, the, chrome yeah well, see, cough, cough. no joke I, I think browsers are the biggest uh the biggest reason i think it might not be a bad idea hemron to fire up firefox and chrome and or chrome and you know open up a few tabs and see what it looks like then because i think a lot of people use uh you know those with lesser hardware tend to use them kind of like a chromebook right where you've got a browser and you do everything inside of that so i don't know i, I would be curious to see what uh more than what an operating system uses at rest what it uses after you've used the browser for about 30 minutes and you just kind of keep those tabs open 
I have considered doing that rating on a lease to say, okay, with four tabs of Firefox open, you've got this. Yeah, exactly. But how much of that is controlled by the hardware? I have been learning that there's quite a bit of difference from one machine to another. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to some extent, especially when it comes to devices that allow hardware acceleration for video. If it doesn't have it, which does happen sometimes with Linux systems, um, then yeah, your CPU is going to throttle, well, it's going to max out every time you run a video. And I don't even have a clue what happens when you're gaming because that's not what I do. Yeah, well, anyway, I think, man, this is this is a really good topic. I, I feel like we're not doing it justice because there's way more to talk about about something like this. But oh, yeah. we did answer the question. I, I just feel like there's a wider conversation to be had, and I think that may find its way into an innards one of these days. No, no, no. Thinking about it, you know, trying to process the last two years' worth of, of shows, haven't we done one on... Or, well, maybe it's just a topic we've discussed quite a bit when it came to um, RAM usage and swap and all that. Yeah, but, you know, I think things change a lot. I mean, as Fedora put in their their new memory management module, I mean, you know, things change. So it might not be a bad idea to every year or two come back and talk about it again. I'm perfect with it. Heck yeah. I mean, we come back to Raspberry Pi and come back to (laughs) gaming all the time. So let's do it. VS Code. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for the email, Hemorin. I hope we answered your question to your satisfaction. If not, please email us back, and we'll do this all again. Um, so next up, Highlander. We apologize, Henrik. Why? Why? You keep calling him by his last name. Oh. <laughs> well, either way. All right. So um, uh, Highlander next. So uh, who wants to take this one? Uh, you want me to read it? You go for it. All right. Looking around, watching, and listening to what is going on around me, I get the sense that there are some things people are missing. There seems to be an over-dependence on an internet service provider when two or more people want to exchange data between each other. Did you know that ever since 2007, it is possible to exchange data between phones without dependence upon an internet service provider? There are two methods of data exchange that can be used by the civilian population right now with modern cell phones that do not need assistance from an internet service provider. First is a USB cable. Data connection. It is a reasonably high bandwidth data connection through a laptop, desktop, or tower computer. This should work regardless of whether the operating system is Windows, Mac, or Linux. I have tried the Windows and Linux systems. They both work. The other method is direct connection through Bluetooth data. Bluetooth data is like a bunch of walkie-talkies talking to each other without a service provider. On an Android smartphone, select the file you want to share and click share. Then click Bluetooth. Your Bluetooth transceiver will turn on. Then your phone will search for discoverable Bluetooth devices in your local area, maybe 30 feet. Select the device you want, then click send. The other device needs to click accept in order for the data to be exchanged. If you have a hiccup in this operation, try sending the file without verification or security. Odds of success should increase. If you are with a trusted friend and the hiccup persists, try Bluetooth pairing your phones prior to sharing data. Odds of success should increase. Bluetooth is bandwidth limited to about 110 KB per second. So be reasonable with your data exchange expectations hope this helps highlander 
Now, um, isn't I, there another method with some phones is. that that they actually have where you can yeah. tap them if they're the same phone? Oh yeah, that, that usually connects them over um, Bluetooth. It just does the uh, the handoff using NFC, and then it exchanges them that way. There is another way you can use um, direct Wi-Fi on some devices to exchange data back and forth. Um, and these are good ideas, but yeah, Bluetooth is really slow, especially for larger files. Now, the um, direct cable connection is great as long as you, you know, have a cable handy with you. And yeah, I do it all the time. I will connect my uh, phone up to my computer and shuffle data back and forth, just pull things off of my phone so that I get a bit more space available. I, I really don't like exchanging data over Bluetooth. I guess well, one of the... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I, I guess the, the Bluetooth method, people or at least iPhone users have been using for years and just not known it because isn't that essentially how AirDrop works? Is just local Bluetooth around with other users? So the way that... that uh, mostly, yes. The way that AirDrop works is it uses Bluetooth to do the, uh, to do the authentication and the, and the trading of information but Wi-Fi is used to actually send the file itself, so you end up with a much faster transfer than you would over Bluetooth. Ah, uh, yeah, that's perfect. For Android, I don't have a lot of Android devices anymore, but when I do uh, need to move things to and from an Android device, I'll use AirDroid. I think um, it's similar to Push Bullet, but I don't, I don't, don't even know more. if those things are still available anymore. I just have it on old devices that it, it still works. So, um, And it, it, AirDroid gives you like a full uh, drag-and-drop interface on uh, through a web browser, so... If I just need to move a bunch of stuff, that's the way that I'll do it. Um, and then, oh, what what was my other? Ah, oh, oh, on Linux. If you're Linux from top to bottom, Warpinator. Don't forget about Warpinator, man. If you have access to Flatpak and you're not on Linux Mint, you can still install Warpinator, and it does the same basic yep. idea. It uses Avahi for discovery, and it uses Wi-Fi or Ethernet, whatever you're connected to, uh, for the transfer itself. Is that a direct connection, or would that be... Um... Over a network. It's peer-to-peer. So, I mean, you would need you would need to have the two devices obviously cl- plugged into a switch and have an IP address. But once you have that basic minimum uh, set up, I mean, Warpinator is going to work just fine. It does not require the internet to work, and it does not require anything but one single local area network to get it done. Which, I mean, outside of Bluetooth, I mean, that's what you're using anyway. Well, even if I, like, shut off my modem... Uh, BT Sync is still going to work a- along my local network. Right. That's one of the nice things about that too. Exactly. But yeah, that's still not. It is going just from one to the other, but I still don't think that meets the parameters of what he's trying to get here. Well, I mean, I, I guess maybe I missed the parameter, what, which is just move things from one device to another, right? Yeah. Uh, Warpinator still wins, I think, on that one, and 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 high bandwidth. It's- BT Sync technically would too, but like uh, I. I I think he was going for the the simpler methods of just a direct connection and then moving files that way, which Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and cables could all potentially meet. Well, right, and I think I mean because Warpinator only uh, only relies on the cable or Wi-Fi if that's what you're using. I mean, I, I think it fits the bill. Okay, who wants the next one? I'll do it in the John Ball. Ah, oh, oh, you can. Leo's do it? been doing it, but I but I've been quiet for a while. All right. So. Now, you have to wake me up when you ask me anything. You know? <laughs> uh, John Wallace Saga. Hi, Leo. Leo can answer. Thank you for your helpful feedback on 354.5. Much appreciated. 
I would appreciate your advice, please, regarding the following services that Linus has marked as unsafe. Oh, yeah. Now we've got yeah. WPASupplicant.service, user at 1000.service, thermal.service, getty at tty7.service, and udisc2.service. I look forward to hearing from you. Take it, Leo. Oh, boy. All right. So, WPA supplicant, if you use Wi-Fi, don't turn it off. <laughs> I don't know exactly why Linus is marking it unsafe, um, but, I mean, Wi-Fi is, eh, I don't know. I won't even really say inherently unsafe, but, I mean, you're spraying your data all over the place when you do Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is not a quiet protocol in any way whatsoever. Um, so, I mean, if, if someone has been able to lift your um, your WPA2 key or something like that, your, your passphrase, um, then, I mean, your stuff is exposed, especially over uh, unencrypted protocols. So maybe that's why it's marking it as unsafe. I mean, wired is safer, but, you know, what happens if someone gets in your switch? I think Linus does take a bit of a everything is scary kind of stance. So maybe that's why they're, they're marking it as unsafe. So if you're using I Wi-Fi, I really think they need to give out more information than just unsafe on these well, things. I think they do. Potential vulnerabilities. Yeah. I mean, everything is potentially vulnerable. Well, when you, when you run the, the Linus thing, I think it does give you information. He's just giving us the, uh, the last word of it. And I think if we looked it up on Linus, it may give us more information, but I did not do that. Uh, just kind of talking about it in a more broad sense. But, um, User at 1000. Uh, this is typically referencing the first user on the system. Uh, this is the user ID that you get when you create the first user on the system after root. Root, I think, is, oh, I should know this. It's zero or one. I think it's zero, maybe. But anyway, um, yeah, user 1000 uh, used to be 100 back in the day. But uh, as, as more and more service accounts came online, um, yeah, 1000, no. Uh, 1000 is the new default. So uh, user 1000 is typically you. And as I did a, um, a system control status of user 1000, I realized that it had a bunch of child processes on it. So it, it seems to me that this is the service that that tends to manage all of the uh, the things that you launch as user 1000. So I would suspect that there might be one of these services every user that are on the system. So if you created a second user, uh, user at 1001, user at 1002, and this is really the service that monitors all of those processes. So I would say don't touch it. Um, th this seems to be something that is, at least on my machine, is is in use a lot, and it does monitor that stuff. So um, if I could have more information as to why Linus thinks it's unsafe, then maybe I can make a better um uh, you know, dive deeper into that. Thermal D, this is the demon that, that monitors your thermals. Uh, so temperatures on your CPU, on your video card, whatever. On my machine, uh, Thermal D said my processor wasn't supported, so it's not even looking at it. And it's an, it's an AMD uh, 2400GE, so I get it. But maybe with a newer kernel, I will, um, that will have gotten support and it may work. But, you know, it's not working right now. It's, it's dead currently, so there's no, nothing wrong with uh, turning off Thermal D as a service on your system, you can leave it off. But I don't see any reason why it would be uh, a big security risk. Um, you can you can get some non-personal identifiable information off of that. You know, remotely accessing a machine and knowing that it's really really hot may tell you that it's in one of the hotter rooms in a particular building or something like that. But you know, I, I don't really think it gives you enough information to really do any kind of damage or really get any kind of uh, information that might harm you in conjunction with other things. Yeah. So that may be why it's uh, under the unsafe umbrella. I was just going to say demon. 
Did you say oh. demon? Oh, yes, sir. Oh, I said demon. Yes, sir. You're you're on Team Joe, and that's, that's unacceptable. Well, it's, it sounds like maybe John Wallace has bigger problems if his entire machine is being possessed and haunted. <laughs> See, but that's exactly why, right? You got demons in the walls and demons in the pipes and demons in the wire and everything, right? That's what this is about. It's those, it's those little gargoyles that sit and stare at you all day. Uh, and right, so there was a thing about gargoyles, right? You're not a gargoyle unless you have a way to uh, to stream out water on top of the building, right? And this is exactly why I think it should be it should be pronounced demon because demons will give you a stream of information via your logs all day long. So demons, yeah. Well, then they need to get rid of their a. Well, that's, that's just the I'm old saying. English spelling, you know. I can't help with that, man. <laughs> you can't help being wrong. We get it. Of course, it. of course. So next up is uh, is Getty uh, at TTY seven. So there there are a couple of Gettys that you have on your machine. Uh, Getty at TTY one and Getty at TTY seven. So I, I it's hard to like. It really is that Getty at symbol TTY one and seven. So Getty at TTY one is typically referring to your GUI. Um, TTY one is normally where GUIs end up. If it is on seven, then um, then you'll actually have this service. So what I will say to you is do a Control Alt F one. If nothing happens, then you're using TTY one for your GUI, and you can safely destroy not destroy like uh, disable Getty at TTY seven because uh, on my machine Getty TTY seven is already off. Uh, it's not being used, uh, if I if I remember correctly. So um, it would be safe for me because it's not in use to just disable it. But in some distros, it's backwards. TTY7 is the GUI, and TTY1 is not. But uh, to be quite honest with you, I wouldn't I wouldn't kill Getty TTY1. Um, Getty in general is the thing that controls your terminals. So when you're doing Control Alt F1, F2, F3, F4, that's the thing behind there that allows that to work. So I wouldn't touch those in general. And then the uh, the last one is uh, UDISCs2. So you can, you can turn this off, but it depends on your distro. And I would assume Linux Mint. And I, uh, I don't actually, hold on. System, control, status, UDISCs2. I don't know if I'm using it. Yes, I am. So um, it, it looks to me that UDISCs is, is, is actually part of the process that when you start up your machine, it helps you mount things, remount things, change things. But UDISCs2 is not the only way to do that. Um, you obviously have things like Gparted and GNOME Disks that can handle mounting and unmounting and things like that. So if for some reason you're using UDISCs in a way that, that Linus is like, you know, uh, the sky is falling. You really need to turn this off. It's okay. The system D and the the kernel itself can still handle mounting your disks and unmounting and moving. Um, but U disks too seems to be just the demon <laughs> that that handles this for uh, for a lot of the Ubuntu things. So if you're on Ubuntu, I would recommend not messing with U disks too. So this is going to be another one where if Linus is telling you something specific about this service, then uh, then let me know and I can I can probably dive into that a little bit uh, a little bit deeper. But it looks like uh, yeah you can you can kill thermal D. That's that's the one that I can unequivocally say. If you don't care about thermals and, or your chip is not supported like mine, eh, just turn it off. But the others, there are good reasons to leave them on. So anyway, that'll do it for uh, for this one. So we'll head down to check this out. Demon, that's how you pronounce it. 
Hold on, Moss, you, you put... <laughs> hold on, let's check out this Wikipedia article real quick that Moss put in the thing. Uh, does this settle the debate or does it just make it worse? It makes it worse. Okay. Yeah, see... It's... It's originally supposed it to be Damon, but, yeah. uh, but Demon is is what has evolved into. Of course, if you're old MS DOS, it's just a TSR. Right. So let me let me. You know what? This might settle it. Which pronunciation comes first when you have the either or situation here in Wikipedia? And you know it it the wrong it one. pains me to say Demon's first. Yeah, you know, I just I don't know what to tell you guys. Pains you to <laughs> say yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, pain. You're hurting, me. I can tell. I know, I know. <laughs> oh. Anyway, either either pronunciation is fine. I just I really like demon because I don't know, there's a lot of lore with demons and things like that. So I like thinking that uh, you know, those those well, guys exist. The in my idea machine. is that a daemon is neither good nor evil, whereas a demon is definitively evil. Oh yeah, Linux is evil, so totally demon. Why would you even post this moss? You're just encouraging him. <laughs> <laughs> Give it a few minutes. Oh man. I can't help it. I will just because absorb all of this. Because we need to keep Tony awake a little longer. That's true. That's true. All right. Ten more minutes, Tony. Hang on. Hang <laughs> on. All right. So, Moss, you got... Ooh, this looks cool. What is this? The Pi Amiga project turns a Raspberry Pi 400 into an Amiga with hundreds of Amiga games available. And now they have expanded it to where images are available for the Pi 400, the Pi 4, and even the Pi 3B. Oh, don't you have a 3B that you can put this on? I've got a 3B, but Ooh. boy, would I love to have it on a Pi 400 that would make it an Amiga 400 and uh, just like the old 500, you know, a That's little keyboard cool. with all, everything in it. Yeah. That well, get, get so to cool. know it. Yeah. Get to know it on the 3B. And then when you get yourself a Pi 400, then it's just an easy shuffle over. Well, I would bet that the 3B is a more limited system than what's for the 4. Probably. I can just do a SD card swap on my 4 that I'm using as my uh, Kodi server. Oh, true, true that, yeah. All right, well, next up, Josh has down here YubiKey. Everyone needs one. And this is true. If you care about your security and you want to do two-factor uh, right, I think YubiKey or other hardware dongles in general are the are kind of the right way to do that. Um so he writes, uh, I was skeptical about it at first, but now that I have one, I'm hooked. So the general idea with the YubiKeys are either you have them plugged in or near your device that you're trying to log into one of your two-factor style login uh, services like Google or something like that. Um, or Bitwarden actually is one of the things that uh, I use a lot and can take a YubiKey, but I do think you have to pay for Bitwarden which is, it's actually pretty cheap. I think it's like two bucks a month and you get all it's those. It's 10 bucks a year for Bitwarden. Oh, oh, even better. So it's not even a dollar a month to to get the ability to use YubiKeys and be that much safer uh, storing Also not a Mintcast sponsor. Yeah, well, I mean. All, I do miss my YubiKey. Yeah, they're really good. And they're really not very expensive either. Mm -mm. No, I mean, can you really put a price on uh, keeping track of everything in your life? Uh, 40 bucks is a pretty small price to pay if you get the, uh, the, the, the one that has less features, but still. Well, Josh says he got one for about 25 bucks. Oh, what? For that one They're with cheaper less now? Features. That's fantastic. <laughs> just, just to point out as well, if you use a laptop a lot and you travel around and there's lots of, um, confidential data on it for work, as well as encrypting the drive, you can also put the bootloader on a USB key that you keep in your pocket and then when you when you uh, before you switch the computer on you just put the usb key in and it'll boot but without that key 
it won't boot the computer. Exactly. At all. I think that was one of the one of the cool things about YubiKey is that you can use it. It it got added to the kernel a while back, and you can use it now as your key to unencrypt your hard drive and actually boot right in. And so without cool. that key, your hard drive is just a you know a hunk of SSD that can't be read. So yeah. Oh man. Yeah, and you can you can do two um, FA with your cell phone per se. Um, and just, you know, tell the system, send me a code, it sends you a code, it verifies your phone, and then you use your phone. And it, a lot of people would consider it easier to have that your phone on you since you have it on you all the time sure. anyway. And then, but my issue is, is it's so much easier to reach over and press the button on the Yubi key than it is for me to type out the, the code that gets sent to my phone. Yeah, well, I mean, every day I went to work when I did do that, um, I, I had my keys on me. Yeah, yeah, back in the before time. I had my keys on me all the time. So, I mean, you know, if I had my laptop in my backpack, I'd have the Yubi key on my keychain, and then it wouldn't be an issue one way or the other to actually um, uh, to plug that in to, to boot up or to log into things or whatever the deal is. Uh, the, and, and I think most of the YubiKeys, or at least the one that I had, was metal. So, yeah, fit well. They're pretty almost indestructible, too. They're waterproof, yeah. crush-proof, I think shock-proof. And... Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I'm pretty sure my YubiKey is right where I left it sitting in the USB port in my monitor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't mean to do that, but, yeah, it got left there for like a year now. Yeah. Either way, um, if you're concerned about your privacy, if you want to up your two-factor game, YubiKey is a great option. There are a couple, there are a couple others, but I think we're all pretty familiar with the YubiKey. So, uh, yeah, go grab one. Joe? Now, Mike, we we were talking about books earlier and audiobooks, and I wanted to recommend one for you. And it's the uh, Damon novel series by Daniel Suarez. Okay. It's, it's actually really good. Um, it's two books. It's uh, Damon and Freedom, and I highly recommend them. And I think they're along the lines of the 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 fiction that you would like. Oh, okay. Thriller style. Um, it is science fiction, but um, it it doesn't seem completely outside the realm of possibilities. Is it Damon well, or Damon? I would also... it, it's Damon. Okay, good, good. <laughs> and on the other side, we can always recommend Demon Squad by Tim Marquitz. Yeah, it, that's a good series, too. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I'm a big and reader. And the Demon so. Accords. I like the Demon Accords. Damon Accords? Yeah, the Damon Accords. No, it's actually Demon <laughs> Accords. D-E-M. D- There's no A in that one. How many, you said the, uh, the Damon series is two books? Yeah, Damon novel series. I, I did post a link in, in the show notes. Very cool. All right. Well, that wraps it up for the show. We have one announcement left, uh, which is our next episode will be at 2 p.m. Central U.S. time on March 7th, 2021. Um, And we'll have a link in the show notes as well as a link on the website for how to get that converted to your time zone so you don't have to do any of that uh weird math try to figure out uh what time texas is right now but outside of that joe where can we find more of you well you can catch me on a couple of the other shows that i'm on i'm on the linux link tech show um www.tllts.org i'm on the linux Lugcast which is at www.linuxlugcast.com. We just recorded this last Friday, so it should be out by now. 
You can find me on MeWe, although I've been much less active on MeWe lately. Or you can send me an email directly, jb at mintcast.org, and I do check that daily. And Bo has uh, his YouTube channel, Undercast Collective, which now includes uh, Crowbar Kernel Panic. I think that's right. Josh is not here to correct me, so if it's wrong, well, whoops. <laughs> we'll get it right next time. Um, and Moss, what about you? Well, you can find me on It's Moss. I'm at MeWe. I've got several blogs. Music is on Bandcamp and on various YouTube channels, all linked in the show notes. You can reach me at moss at mintcast.org, although if you want a quick response, you should use zyvalananda at protonmail.ch. Um, you can find me on Mastodon at zyvala at hosttux.social. For toots. You can get him. You, you can see his toots. And I have a sponsor. I can toot. And I have a sponsor with a few really nice sponsors now, so um, I'd love to have more. I do not want to be a professional podcaster. I want to be an appreciated podcaster. <laughs> and you will chase folks down. <laughs> As I can attest. <laughs> Tony, what about you? Yeah, you can find me at Hacker Public Radio. I'm uh, host ID 338. I do an occasional blog, tony-hughes.blogspot.com. I'm on Twitter, tonyh1212. You can get me at th at mintcast.org or distrohoppersdigest at gmail.com. And Tony Watson here this time, but you can get him at tw at mintcast.org or just Google up Echoes of Savages, the band. And Josh cut out a little early, so you can get him at joshontech at mintcast.org, I think, and at joshontech on Twitter and most other social sites. As for me, leochavez.org and at leochavez on Twitter, leochavez at mintcast.org, linuxuserspace.show, and you can get your five-minute news digest at Full Circle Weekly News, or you can buy me a coffee. Now, before we go, we have to thank one more time Mike for coming on to the show. So thank you, Mike. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it again. Of course. And if you want to get in touch with Mike, you can get him grouchym at pm.me. But before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible, Mike included, Owen Peary for our audio editing, Josh Lowe for all his work on the website, Hobstar for our logo, and Londoner for our time sync and like half those links in the show. <laughs> Seriously. Bitemark Hosting for hosting Mintcast.org and our Mumble server, Archive.org for hosting our audio files, HPR for our backup mumble room, and of course, the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about every fortnight. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. Thanks, Clem. And Co. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com for our theme music, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Mintcast.